In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. So I don't use this word lightly, but Angie Thomas's novel, The Hate You Give, was a game changer. Here's why. It talked openly about race and police brutality in a book for young adults. It changed the publishing industry, showed them that a lot of success can come with telling more diverse stories. And, I mean, sadly, because it started another kind of conversation when people tried to ban her book. So Angie is here to talk about that whole journey, to talk about her new fantasy novel for middle schoolers. And why she thinks people really want to ban books. Angie Thomas is coming up. Plus, this was a first for us. Saeed Tibi is a writer. He won a big prize in Canada. He shortlisted for another one. But when he came in to talk to us, he did it on his break from his day job as a lawyer. So Saeed will tell you why he wanted to tell the stories of the honest, everyday lives of the Palestinian diaspora and how being a lawyer helps him with his writing. Maybe his writing helps him with his law. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So yeah, back in 2017, Angie Thomas writes this novel, The Hate You Give. It broke a lot of barriers, even for 2017. It puts a black girl front and center in her own story. It was for young people, yet it talked about race and police brutality in a really honest way. It also sold millions of copies. It stayed on the YA New York Times bestseller list for like hundreds of weeks, really showing the publishing industry that there's a lot of money to be made in in telling stories that weren't up to that point being told. Since then, Angie's gone on to write a bunch of successful YA books, and they've all sold a kajillion copies. And now she's trying something different. Her new book is called Nick Blake and the Remarkables, The Manifestor Prophecy. It's about a, a young black girl who has some incredible magical powers. It's a fantasy novel. It debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list yet again. These are the facts you need to know about Angie Thomas. But our conversation today is about so much more than that. It's about how fantasy might be the best way to talk to kids about racism. It's about how when she was a kid, Angie would rewrite the endings of books that her mom would read her if she didn't like how they ended. And the part that is still sticking out to me that kind of remained with me for hours after we talked is towards the end of this part of our conversation where Angie, and I wasn't expecting this, told me the story about how uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez from the band TLC literally saved her life when she was a kid. Here's my conversation with Angie Thomas. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I've been looking forward to talking to you. I always enjoyed uh, talking to you. Um, uh, congrats on the book. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. So um, to see that already so many people are, are falling in love with the story, with the characters, it it's very satisfying. It, it feels like a big goal, dream accomplished. Is the number one thing a big deal? Or are you kind of like, yeah, whatever, another one, whatever. It's fine. Oh, no, it's, it's a big deal to me. <laughs> it's a huge deal to me, um, especially because... It's a new category, um, age category, new genre, and you just you never know. Um, and and I'm so used to so many of my readers being, you know, a little older. So to know that I've found young readership and then also some of my older readers have come along for the ride, it, it meant a lot. So it was it was definitely a a wonderful thing to see. I was doing a bit of research because when I first saw it, I was like, oh, Angie Tom is writing, writing fantasy. And then I was doing research. You, you wrote fantasy kind of really early on, right? It just didn't get published. Is, is, can you tell me that story? Yeah. I, the first book I tried to get published, the first manuscript I wrote was right out of college. And it was a fantasy book. And it was a little about a little white boy named Stevie. Um, and it was kind of superhero fantasy, whatever you want to call it. And it was rejected like 300 times. But I'm glad it was um, because there was a side character in the book that I absolutely loved. And her name was Nick. And I really wanted to write a book about her. I just wasn't sure that if at that time that was something that would even be published because 
there were the calls for diversity in kids lit, but there was a lack of diversity in kids lit. So I didn't think a book about a black girl at the at, as the main character on a magical adventure would get published. So um, I, I will say though, what I ended up doing is in Nick Blake, um, the Stevie books are like a huge book series in her world. So I gave myself the success in the book that I didn't get for real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you published your own book in your own book. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and so when, when did, when did it come back? Like when, why did you decide to revisit this? Why did you decide to finally write the fantasy genre? Um, in t- you know, I decided to write it. Probably I got the idea to do it in 2020. You know, that was such an uneventful year. Nothing happened that oh, year. Yeah, real boring Our lives year. Not, yeah, it was a boring year. Mm-hmm. Our lives weren't turned upside down, inside out. But um, no, but um, I, I realized I needed an escape. I was working on my third novel, Concrete Rose, um, and finishing it up. And the good thing about it, it takes place in 1998 and 1999, which unfortunately makes it historical fiction. Ouch. Um, but I didn't have to deal with <laughs> I didn't have to deal with the pandemic in that book. I didn't have to deal with social media or any of that stuff. And then once I finished it, I'm like, OK, what do I do now? Do I really want to write contemporary? Do I want to write something set during the pandemic? Do I want to write about real life stuff? Do do I even want to figure out how to let two characters kiss with mask on? Like, do I want to do that? You know, and so I didn't. And I knew if I needed an escape, my my readers needed one as well. So I decided to create this fantasy world and get into this book. Tell me, I mean, it's a fantasy world, but we're still, it's it's an escapey fantasy world, but it's also a great way to sort of look at, at some at some real life stuff as well. But before before we get to that, um, can, you, can you just maybe set this up for me a little bit? You know, you, you, you're, you give your lead character, Nick Blake, the special magic called the gift you create this magic world where black folks aren't aren't the others called a huru T- tell me a little bit about about that set set some of that up for me yeah um well growing up some of my favorite stories to hear were these folk tales um that were put into an anthology by a woman by the name of virginia hamilton yeah it was a fantastic writer um fantastic educator and she had a an anthology called the people could fly And one of my favorite stories was the story, the title story, The People Could Fly. And it was about these enslaved folk who were on a plantation and this mysterious man spoke these words to them and they suddenly had the ability to fly off to freedom. And my mom would read that story to me and I loved hearing it. But then one day I remember asking her, "Okay, what happens after they fly away? And she's like. I don't know. She she totally pulled the parent thing and said, why don't you figure it out? <laughs> and, but that's what I did. I ran with it. And so that story meant so much to me as a kid that I wanted to pay homage to it in my fantasy world. So Nick Blake is a descendant of the people who could fly. Um, the gift not only allowed them to fly off to freedom, it gave them magical abilities where they could do things like control the elements, create illusions, um, all these different types of wonderful magical type things. And it's a power that is within them. They don't need wands. Um, in fact, in my world, wands are cursed. Um, this is a God-given ability that they have. And she, she, but even though she has this gift, she has the gift, um, she still has to learn how to use it. And so we see early on in the book that Nick wants nothing more than to learn how to use the gift. But she also has to learn over the course of the book, over the course of the series, that be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I was having a conversation like this with Sheree Demeline not that long ago. We were talking about YA. We were talking about young people's fiction. We were talking about fantasy. You know, uh, um, uh, Sheree is is indigenous, in, and we, we talked a little bit about sneaking. She said YA and young adult fiction is a great way to sneak sort of social commentary, justice commentary, good lessons in into this work. Um, I, I see you nodding. Please, please elaborate on your nodding here when it comes to this book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one reason I wrote this fantasy book is because of a lot of conversations that were happening in 2020 after the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. There were a lot of conversations about police brutality. There were a lot of conversations about the prison system. There were conversations about what would the world look like if we totally rethought the way policing happens, especially in America. Um, 
What would what would the world look like if there weren't prisons? What if it was more we focused on rehabilitation and and figuring out how to help people as opposed to just as opposed to just throwing them into a cage? And then there were people who would push back and say, oh, that's a fantasy. That's a fantasy. Even the idea of black people living in a world where they're not racially profiled, um, where they they aren't stereotyped, um, a world where they're completely free to live without worrying about these things, there were even people who wanted to say that type of world is the fantasy. Well, I decided to make it my fantasy world. <laughs> I decided to make it the fantasy world. So um, in the remarkable world, there aren't prisons. In the remarkable world, the police are there to help more than just to protect and serve. They're there to be a social service to a degree. So I wanted to rethink all of those things and have a discussion about that to a degree. But also it's a book that's still, even though it's a fantasy book, it deals with a lot of real world issues. Yeah. Like there's a discussion about Emmett Till. There's a discussion about lynching. There's a discussion about racial profiling and police brutality because like it or not, these are things that even 12 year old black kids have had to have discussions about. Um, so I would be doing them a disservice if I didn't include them in the book. Did, did I hear that um, your mom heard the shot that um, killed Megar Evers? Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. My mom um, grew up in a house. The house she grew up in was later the house I grew up in. And it wasn't far from Megar Evers' home. Um, and so my mom actually knew his cousin, his little cousin. And and she still to this day can tell you she heard the gunshots that killed Megger Evers um, when he was he was getting out of his car in his driveway and he was assassinated in his driveway. And my mom heard the gunshots. Oh, my God. Did she talk to you about that when you were I mean, you were saying that, like, these are things that sadly the reality is that 12 year old, especially 12 year old racialized kids need to do. These are the lessons they learn. Uh, did your mom talk to you about that when you were a kid? Oh, yeah, absolutely. She did. She did. I knew those things. I knew about. I learned about lynching at an early age. Um, I learned about Emmett Till at an early age. I think I was about six years old when I learned about Emmett Till and I saw the pictures of his brutally beaten body. Um, I, I learned about these things early on. And I think that's what bothers me so much about right now, especially here in the States, there are a lot of conversations about banning books and what kids should and shouldn't know. And there are people who don't want kids to know history, but if kids don't know history, how do they know how not to repeat it? Mm. You know, mm -hmm. um, and me learning those things, it didn't tarnish me. It didn't turn me against anyone. It made me aware of the things that have happened in the past, but it also showed me, it helped me to learn that despite these things happening, my worth is not factored into the belief system, the racism of someone else. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, has, it has also allowed you to, I guess, to be motivated to tell some of that story yourself to the, to the younger, younger people who may not have access to this in their school curriculum is, is what that's making me thinking of, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That That's super important to me um, because even in a fantasy book, I, I, I still want their... I still want to spark conversations. Yeah. I still want to spark questions. You know, um, I'm, I'm not going into a whole lot of detail in it, but there's enough that if a kid, kid reads this book, if they don't know who Emmett Till is, they're going to know something now. And then maybe just maybe they'll want to find out more. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. My guest today is Angie Thomas, one of the most successful and groundbreaking authors of young adult fiction. And we were talking about inspiring and educating the next generation of kids. So she just mentioned the story of Emmett Till. Um, a little earlier, you might have also heard us bring up uh, the name Medgar Evers. If you're not as familiar with his story, Medgar was a prominent black civil rights activist who was murdered at his home in Jackson, Mississippi in 1963. And as Angie was saying, her mom actually heard the gunshots that killed Megger Evers. Megger was killed by a Ku Klux Klan member who was finally convicted for the murder 30 years later. In this next part of our conversation, I wanted to know more about Angie's gift for storytelling and where it came from, because I had heard the story that she started uh, really early. Take a listen. 
It's funny you were telling me that story about um, you know you, you grew up with all these the, that those those folk tales, and you would try to like you would say to your mom like you know what happens what happens after the folk tale is over, and your and your mom would go well you know you you come up with it because I heard a story about the when you were a kid like that was kind of like that for a lot like you for bedtime stories for like books <laughs> you would make up other endings if you weren't happy with them is that true? Oh yeah, I was a little control freak. Um, <laughs> I was a little control freak. Like I, I remember I hated the way Green Eggs and Ham ended. I just, I thought Dr. Seuss was the worst. I was like, Mommy, he should not like Green Eggs and Ham at the end, just because everybody else likes it. And she's like, Okay, tell your own version. And I don't think she thought that I would grab my little crayon and scratch through Dr. Seuss's words in the actual book and write over them. But that was me. That, that was me completely. And now I'm like, yep, I was a control freak. I'm talking to my therapist about it. But um, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also realized too, I was just, I was a storyteller. I, I loved telling stories even then. And I loved the way that a lot of stories made me want to tell stories even more. Um, they made me think, they made me imagine. So I wouldn't be the author I am now if it weren't for my mom allowing me to write over Dr. Seuss's words in that book. That, that's, the, that's called the original fan fiction. Did you, exactly. <laughs> did you, the original Wattpad, did you, um, but, but I also heard that when you were in, it's funny to be talking to you about YA and talking to you about like younger, because my understanding is when you were a teenager, you kind of hated reading, right? I did. I did. I got away from it, like from ages 13 to I'd say 18. I got away from it. I stopped reading um, because Why? it was hard for me to, it was hard for me to find books that I connected with books that I saw myself in. Um, I remember, and I have, I say, I mentioned this one as an example a lot. I have nothing against Twilight, just for the record. I have nothing against Twilight, nothing against the author. But those books were huge when I was a teenager, but I could not connect with them. I remember reading it and thinking, my mom is not going to let me date some old vampire. Like, what is this? <laughs> you know, and but if it, when you see like a lot of the popular YA books, um, especially at that time, they were featuring young people who weren't like me, who didn't live in neighborhoods like mine. And so I was like, ah, that's not for me. That's not for me. I was listening to hip hop instead. I was going to rappers for storytelling and things like that. So um, books kind of failed me, specifically popular books failed me. Um, and I'm actually, I'm glad that they did because hip hop taught me a lot about storytelling. Um, but also the fact that I didn't see myself in books now makes me want to make sure young people see themselves in books. What rappers in particular were, were meaningful to you in terms of storytelling? I think um, one obvious is um Tupac. When I was young me and my mama had beef 17 years old kicked out on the streets. Um two of my books were named after either concepts he had or his book of poetry. So I love Tupac, huge Tupac fan. Um I was a huge fan of TLC, especially left out from TLC. A scrub is a guy that thinks he's flying this also known as a buster. I have a whole story with how uh, a personal story with how she Helped save my life. What, 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 um, can, can you tell me that story? I mean, do you want to tell me that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So um, when I was about 13, 14 years old, I was bullied relentlessly in school to the point that it affected my mental health. And my mom pulled me out of public school and homeschooled me. Um, but I was still affected mentally and emotionally. And therapy just wasn't something we could afford. Um, and so one day I hit a serious low. And to the point that I wanted to permanently harm myself. Oh my. And I locked myself up in the bathroom and with every intention to hurt myself. But I also had my little CD Walkman with my headphones. And Waterfalls by TLC started playing and Left Eye's rap came on. I seen a rainbow yesterday, but too many storms have come and gone, leaving a trace of not one God given raising. And at the end of the rap, she says, dreams are hopeless aspirations and hopes are coming true. Believe in yourself. The rest is up to me and you. Dreams are hopeless aspirations and hopes are coming true. Believe in yourself. The rest is up to me and yeah. And I remember hearing that and going, oh, wow. I have all these hopes, all these dreams, all these aspirations, and I can't see them happen if I do something to myself. So I left the bathroom and I told my mom what had happened and I confessed to her what I had intended to do. 
And I told her how the song affected me. And my mom goes, well, if the song affected you like that, I can only imagine what talking to her or something would do. So this is like, let me just add some context. This is like 2001, 2002. Um, my mom goes on ax which was like the original Google. And to this day, I don't know how she did it, but she asked G's for Left Eye's phone number and she got the phone number to her studio, which was in her house. So basically she got her home phone number. And (laughs) so she calls and she talks to Lisa's assistant and she tells her about me. And she's just like, if she could just talk to her, just please just talk to her for a few minutes. I'm in another room watching TV and my mom comes in and she's like, hey, somebody wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking it's one of those old aunties out of state who wants to know how I'm doing in school. I don't want to deal with this. So, But I get on the phone and she goes, hey, it's left eye. I flipped out. Now, you have to remember TLC was huge yeah. at this time. No yeah. scrubs, yeah. unpretty, all of that. Yeah. I flipped out. I ran around the house screaming. Finally, I got myself together and I got on the phone and I talked to Lisa Left Eye Lopez and she got to know me a little bit. Then she asked about what was going on, what had happened with me in school and stuff. And I told her about everything. And and she just said, she said, you know, I don't know you, but I have a feeling you're going to do something big one day and you got to stick around to do it. Wow. And what did that mean to you? So <laughs> that that changed it for me, for my hero. And yeah, I know she burned a house down. I don't care. Uh, my hero. <laughs> to speak that into me meant so much to me. And then she sent me like... Uh, her CD, signed CDs, some stuff, some swag and stuff. But those words stayed with me. And it was unfortunately that only a few months after that, she passed away. So she never got to see that what she said is hopefully coming true. But that meant so much to me and I've carried it with me. Um, and, And I'm just, I'm eternally grateful. So whenever somebody asks me who are my top two rappers, Left eye is one of them. Tupac is the other. Oh man, so, she you, will always be. And you said you got to connect with some of her family and, and go to her house and, and all that kind yeah, of stuff. And... Yeah, yeah. In fact, I have up on my wall right now. I'm looking right at it. I have. I got it framed. I got several of her personal items, including handwritten lyrics and stuff. And I got it put in a frame, so it's here in my office, watching over me all the time. Oh, Angie, that's that's so beautiful. I did just realize. Are you wearing a TLC shirt right now? I am. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I spied it there. I was I like, am. so I was like, hold on. Does she have the left eye memorabilia on the wall? And she's I wearing do. a TLC shirt right I now. Am. I am. It was just a coincidence. How, how about this? <laughs> Why don't you pick a TLC song for us to play? Okay. How about the song that I mentioned that helped me so much in hopes that if there's somebody out there right now going through a hard time, I hope that one, you seek help. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm not okay. In fact, one of the strongest things you can do is say I'm weak. So please reach out to someone. There are organizations, phone lines. Please reach out to someone before you make a permanent decision for what could be a temporary problem. Um, And know that you are loved. Know that your dreams matter. Your hopes matter. And so here's Waterfalls by TLC. Okay, more to come with Angie Thomas. Don't go anywhere. You're going to hear more of our conversation. But yeah, let's, let's listen to the song. You can sing along too. You can.
1994, that is TLC and Waterfalls. I mean, the song that Angie Thomas will tell you kind of saved her life. In a little bit, Angie will tell you how feeling like an outsider on her creative writing programs helped inspire her to write her debut novel, The Hate You Give. And she'll reflect a little bit about the way her book was banned and on the book banning that's still happening in 2023. More with Angie Thomas coming up on Keith. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Sweeping underneath the rug Doesn't mean the dirt won't come up There's a fire burning up Only thing stronger than hate I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. That is some of the song We Won't Move by Arlisa, which was a song written for the soundtrack to the 2018 film The Hate You Give, which is based on the book written by Angie Thomas. You're in the middle of my conversation with Angie Thomas. So The Hate You Give is this book for young adults that looked at police brutality, racism, the lived experience of young black people. It was incredibly successful. It was on the New York Times YA bestseller list for like hundreds of weeks. But like you might sadly expect for a book that talks to young people about racism, it was labeled controversial. There was a really strong backlash to the book. People tried to ban the book from school curriculums. So I was really interested in finding out how Angie was reflecting on all that, especially as she'll tell you, I mean, book banning is still a conversation we're having in 2023. But before we get to all that, um, Angie talks a little bit about where the hate you give came from, because I had heard the story that it came from her going to this private Christian college and being in this creative writing program, and she was one of the only black people in the program. And yeah, she'll tell the story. Here's more of my conversation with Angie Thomas. Yeah, I was the first black student to graduate from that, my college's creative writing program. The program was young, I'll say that, but I was still the first one. Um, And I was most of the time the only black student in my classes. And it made me feel othered. So I often changed the way I spoke, changed the way I presented myself because where I was from, people talked differently. Where I was from, people acted differently. And so I thought I had to adjust who I was, where I was. So I did what's called code switching. Mm. I was careful of how I spoke, how I presented myself. Never wanted anyone to say I was the ghetto black girl, the angry black girl, the poor black girl, or any of those things. Um, But it was hard being two different people in two different places. But it was really hard after the death of a young man named Oscar Grant in Oakland, California. Um, Oscar was killed on New Year's Day, 2009. And he was killed by police. And what really made his death so, I guess, shocking was that it was caught on tape. And again, this was 2009. And so it was a grainy cell phone video, but video showed Oscar Grant lying on his stomach, hands behind his back, unable to move, but a police officer shot him in the back and killed him. And it led to unrest in California, but it also led to conversations in Mississippi. And while in my neighborhood, people were outraged At my school, my classmates either didn't care or they were trying to justify why what happened was okay. And I was so angry, hurt, and frustrated. And I was honestly so tired of being this other person that I knew I needed to do something, say something, or I was going to lose it. And so I ended up writing a short story about a boy named Khalil who was similar to Oscar and a girl named Star who navigated two different worlds like me. And that short story would later become The Hate You Give. The the I think it's I think it's wrong when people attribute one person to a lot of change. That being so, like let's let's acknowledge that you know you are regarded as someone who broke down barriers for more diverse storytelling, especially in young adult fiction. Let's acknowledge that there were other people. There were people who called for that. There were people who laid the groundwork for that. That being said, what. What was that like to have that book take off so quickly and start to start to kind of change some stuff? It was shocking. I don't think I have 
I don't think I've still wrapped my mind around the impact of that book. I see the impact on my life, how it's changed my life personally, but I'm still having a hard time wrapping my mind around what it did in the industry and what it did for so many young people and even not so young people. Um, and I honestly, I prefer it that way because if I tried to figure it out or think on yeah. it all, I would get super overwhelmed. I probably wouldn't be able to write anything else. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like, that's, the, that's the kid that went off to Harvard and got a PhD, you know, that's, that kid is awesome. And I'm just the parent like, yay, you're changing <laughs> lot, you know? Um, but, but it's, it's, I think the thing that really gets me about it though, is like, wait a minute, that book came out in 2017. 2017, you mean it to me, it took a book coming out in 2017 to help change things. Yeah. 2017, yeah. you know, um, as long as publishing has existed, as long as black people have existed, as long as black children have existed. And it took a book in 2017 to prove to people that books about black kids sell that black kids read all of these things. It took that long. I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm thankful that I was put in that position, but I hope that the work of the hate you give goes beyond what it's even what I could imagine. And I hope that in a few years, there's a conversation that's held this saying, you know what? We can't believe that diversity was ever even you know, there was ever even a lack of diversity in kids. It's so, what do you mean there weren't books about Black kids? I hope that sooner than later, the fact that that was even so is mind-boggling to people. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's an incredible point. But in addition to all the acclaim, there was a lot of, there was a lot of pushback as well, going back to what you were talking about with, with book banning. I mean, a police union in South Carolina spoke about, about the book being on a school summer reading list. Some school districts in the U.S. tried to ban it for language issues. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me a little bit about that time, how you look back on it now, uh, especially in the light of what's going on these days. You know, <laughs> um, the, the unfortunate thing is that book banning has gotten worse um, and it's become more widespread. But looking back, like on 2017, 2018, I'm amazed that there wasn't as much pushback against the book as it could have been back then. You know, I, I will be honest with you, when Trump was elected, I had a panic attack because I was like, what if this man tweets about my book or something like that? And it didn't happen. Hallelujah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I I guess I'm not surprised by the pushback. I'm just surprised that it has only really picked up now. Um, in 2018, I thought, you know, oh, maybe just maybe people calling out how shameful book banning is will mean that you know, we'll start to see less book bans. And that was actually the opposite of what happened. Um, but I think what I wish I would have known then too was that even when people ban your books, the only thing they're really doing is telling young people this is actually something you should read. And and the book has still found its way into so many young people's hands. And I'm lucky in that sense. I will say, let me add on, because there is this misconception that if a book is banned, that means it's going to sell a lot. For me, it has happened. But there are so many other authors who don't have the privilege that I've had of having a book with a movie that was a big major seller. Um, their books are getting buried because of these book bans. And that's what the book banners want. Um, and then there are creatives now who are second guessing everything because of yeah. book bans. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying not to do. Um, and so I think... If nothing else, looking back on 2018, I had no clue of what was to come, but I'm actually glad that I didn't. You're you're trying not to have it on your mind while you're writing books, but I'm sure oh, it, creep, it creeps in there, I'm sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and what I have to focus on is I want to do what Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop says, and that's create mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors with books. And I can't create clear mirrors if I'm letting other people and their opinions get in the way and distort that mirror, I can't open doors for young people. If I'm letting other people determine how those doors should look, how wide those doors should be. Um, and I can't create windows if I'm letting other people decide whether or not those windows should even exist. So I can't worry about them. I just have to focus on the mirrors, windows and sliding glass doors. That's, that's beautiful stuff. I want to, I want to end off uh, this way. Um, 
the Nick Blake and the Remarkables, there's a personal angle to this book um, as well. In a tweet uh, recently, you wrote, Dear Grandma, the hardest thing I've experienced so far is watching you lose your memory and, and forget me. So I wrote a book about a girl who tries to save her dad from that same fate because I wish I could have saved you. Um, as much as you're comfortable with, Angie, like whatever you want to say here, can, can you talk to me a little bit about that and about your your, your grandmother and yeah. um, why, why she was so important to this story? Yeah, my grandmother was one of the two parents who raised me. I was raised in a two-parent household, but it was my mother and my grandmother. Um, but when I was around, I want to say when I was around 12, my grandma was diagnosed with dementia, um, which is a form of Alzheimer's. Yeah. And it's one of Alzheimer's dementia. They're like the worst diseases to witness, some of the worst to witness someone experience mm. because you're slowly witnessing their brain, their memories basically fade away. Um, and so slowly over time, she's forgetting things, simple things. She's forgetting how to cook. She's forgetting that she's at her home. She's forgetting me. And when you're 12, 13 years old, you already feel so powerless at times. You want that independence. You know, you feel like you know enough to have some independence, but at the same time, it feels like you have little power. And when you see someone that you adore, that has taken care of you, that's, you know, provided for you, been your hero, your parent, and you're seeing them forget not only themselves, but forget you. It is probably one of the worst feelings as a in the world to go through as a young person. So I wanted to save her. I wish there was something I could have done. And I helped my mom take care of my grandmother. My grandmother um, was diagnosed with dementia when I was about 12. Like I said, she passed away right like a month before I graduated from college. Mm -hmm. And so I helped my mom take care of her um, throughout that entire ordeal. And I felt still so powerless. And I thought about the young people out there who may be going through that and they feel powerless. And I wanted to say, you know what? You may feel powerless, but I'm going to show you a story of a girl who sets out to save her dad in hopes that it gives you some comfort and some strength. So I, I wrote this in a lot of ways for young Angie um, and for the young Angies out there. Angie Thomas, uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you. This is my conversation with Angie Thomas. Um, this, I think it's my third or fourth time I got to talk to Angie Thomas. I love it every single time. Her latest book is called Nick Blake and the Remarkables, The Manifestor Prophecy. It is out now. And I'll tell you, as someone who is not in, in middle school, though maybe has the mentality of someone who is, um, that is still worth reading, even if you don't, if you don't have kids. Um, some news. The the Rakuten Kobo Emerging Writers Prize is this really big prize in Canada, which recognizes exceptional books written by first-time Canadian authors. And I'll be honest with you, when we saw that Saeed Tibi was on the shortlist, we weren't really surprised at all because his book, Her First Palestinian, is a really incredible collection of short stories. It's all about Palestinian people who have moved to Canada, how they navigate their lives here. And Saeed's journey to becoming a writer was pretty incredible. It's something he's wanted to do since he was a teenager. But first, he became a lawyer. In fact, when he came to talk to us, he was on a break from his law practice. So, like, thanks for giving up your lunch. I got the chance to speak with Saeed when his book first came out. Here's a little of our conversation. Let's let's start this conversation the way we start the book, which is we were going to get you to read a little bit of the poem at the beginning of the book. Are you cool with that? Sounds good. Cool. Whenever you're ready. So um, this is a poem that my father wrote, um, and he wrote it originally in Arabic uh, some 50 years ago. So I'm going to read the Arabic um, uh, lines first, and then I'm going to read the English translation. So he says, وَتَنَاثَرْنَا سَرِيعًا كَالْخِرَافِ وَتَجَمَّعْنَا ضِعَافِ ثُمَّ لُقْمًا فِي بطني حوت. Which translates to, we scattered quickly like sheep, we gathered weak, we became morsels in the stomach of a whale. Why did your father write that poem? So when he wrote it, he was actually quite young. He was something like 22 years old. And he was at the time about 20 years removed from having been born a refugee, essentially, in Lebanon to parents who were kicked out of uh, Palestine. And... He was struggling, it seemed to me, with his 
um, status as a member of uh, the Palestinian diaspora, of having no real home, of, of not being in any way settled. And so he, he wrote this poem, and interestingly to me, the, you know, as I was writing my own book, I, I kept going back to his poetry, and it seemed he, w- he was able to contract the diaspora experience into something like three lines. He essentially tells you that um, they were scattered, and it was like a like a scramble to scatter to scatter like sheep, mm-hmm. and then they gathered again, but they weren't strong, mm-hmm. and they were constantly afraid of being digested, as if they were, you know, little pieces in 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 the belly of a whale. So I think he was trying to put voice to the experience that he was feeling as somebody who was stateless and somebody who doesn't really have a home anymore. D- tell me more about him. How did he end up over in in the, he was in the U.S. first, right? So uh, he was actually born in Beirut, mm-hmm. and then he uh, his his family emigrated to Kuwait, where I was born. Mm-hmm. And then we were um, essentially on vacation to the U.S. when I was twelve years old. He was about forty years old, and Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, mm. and so. There was no going back for us. Our houses were ransacked. All our property was confiscated. And as Palestinians, because of the political climate at the time, we weren't actually allowed to go back to Kuwait. So we found ourselves essentially as quasi-refugees in the States. And so he basically our life had to start all over from, from, from the beginning at that point. Um, and that was a difficult experience for a person who, he was a doctor, he was in, in mid-career, mm. um, and suddenly he was essentially a nobody. His licenses were invalid. His, uh, much of his um, education uh, was something that he had to redo in order to reestablish himself. So, yeah, we ended up in the States at first for, for a few years um, before uh, finally uh, he got a sort of a permanent position in, in, in Canada, and, and, and we came to Montreal when I was around um, 16 years old. So I should point out at this point that you are a practicing attorney as we speak. Correct. Not at work at the moment. Correct. (laughs) On a bit of a break to come and talk to me. These stories, they first started to kind of take shape in your head. Am I right about that when you were when you were really young? Look, I mean, these stories are, they're obviously fictional, but they have a lot of um, basis in emotions that you feel uh, throughout growing up. Uh, sort of a you know a, uh, as I put it in the first um, in the first story a diasporic offspring somebody who was born in diaspora and so um, for sure they started from from a very young age I've, I've I've always wanted to write I just didn't think that I had anything real to say so you 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 were you had some aspirations of being a writer but you, it was important that you become a, a lawyer first I'm guessing. A hundred percent. So I've aspired to be a writer since I was, you know, probably 16 or 17 years old. But I was a firstborn to an immigrant family. And so being a writer and not having that, you know, very established income in that kind of context is a tougher sell than I was than, than I was willing to sell to my family. <laughs> and so I was more... Um, Okay, let's 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 try to find a career that, that 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 is helpful to me, that enables me to start my own family, and then hopefully some some sometime down the road, I'll be able to uh, return to writing. And how did it feel when you did it? It felt amazing. I had a a group of friends who we were all writers, and and we sort of shared our work together. And to be able to see my work reflected in them, how they thought about it, how they read it. I have to say, was was incredible, and it reminded me of why I wanted to write uh, in the first place. Which was? So many reasons. Um, I wanted to write to express myself. I wanted to write to tell people things that they may not know, especially with with Palestinians. It's, it's a... It's a population that that has been made invisible in many ways, mm. and I wanted to make that to make them more visible. I wanted to inject some humanity into what otherwise is usually a new story that lacks humanity and 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 is put into numbers. Just as importantly, I, I wanted to highlight pa- Palestinians in diaspora, which are sort of a, a little bit different because they they no longer have the ability to go back uh, home. That's not an avenue that's available to them by and large. And that's a different kind of experience that has a sort of a cleavage, um, both physically and emotionally. And, and, and I thought those are fertile areas for, um, for fiction. Certainly. I mean, I never would have guessed until I, I found out that this was your, your debut, debut collection. It is spectacular writing. And 
In particular, everything you're talking about, um, and we're going to get you to read a little bit from it, from the first story in the collection, the, the, the titular story, as they say, her, her, her first Palestinian, about the, the Palestinian diaspora, about relating to non-Palestinians who would only know the Palestinian story from the news, but even then may not really understand the story. And, and if, uh, you can set this up a little bit. The first story is sort of about a relationship between a Palestinian-Canadian and a non-Palestinian Canadian who sort of becomes obsessed. That's, that's correct, right? That's exactly right. It's 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 a very strange experience. A lot of times when you when when you when you speak to to non-Palestinians who don't who have no orientation in it as a Palestinian, and and you have a lot of education to hopefully provide them, and hopefully they're receptive to it. And so that's what this story uh, is about. Can you read a little bit of it for us? Happy to. So this is from her first Palestinian. Not long after the first joys of finding each other had settled, Nadia asked me if I would teach her about my country. It was inevitable. The walls of my Toronto apartment were conspicuously covered with Palestinian artifacts, and donation brochures featuring Gazan children were often lying around. I said of course I would, though at the time I was busy finishing up my residency and trying to land a permanent position. She was busy too. She was a lawyer. Our initial discussions were informal and took place between embraces. After she quickly devoured the basics and asked for more, I realized I had to create a sort of ad hoc curriculum for Nadia. So I did. I summarized all the major historical milestones, the British Mandate, the Nakba, the 1967 war, etc., and supplemented with analyses of current socio-political issues. Most of these things I knew by heart, like any good diasporic offspring. For those that I didn't, I asked my parents or consulted a text I trusted. I took an even-handed approach because someone as intelligent as Nadia would have been weary of anything else. I am no proselytizer, but the truth was self-evident. Nadia took to the cause immediately. She had a lot of outrage. Do you realize that you are an indigenous population? She asked. I did. Do you realize that they are trying to prevent you from engaging in even the most peaceful forms of protest? She demanded. I did. I attributed most of Nadia's reaction to her desire to support me. But some of it seemed to stem from her feeling that she had been duped, that all her life she had been taught one thing, when the reality I was revealing to her was something far different. That was Saeed TV reading from the title story from his debut collection, Her First Palestinian. I love, um, you describe so well the dynamic of someone being incredulous on your behalf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me more about that. Talk to me more about the dynamic between these characters. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's definitely, there's a sense between those characters that, you know, I'm trying to explain something about myself to you. But the person he's in a relationship with, she's like, do you understand that this is wrong? In this culture, what they're, what, what's happening to Palestinians is wrong. And, and, and she's framing it in, in ways that she thinks he might have you know, emitted or missed somehow. When to him, it's like, no, no, I know. It's just that people don't understand it or, or, or aren't keen to talk about it. So it's an interesting dynamic. And as the story goes on, if, if, if you read it, it, it becomes more and more so where she's much more into the cause almost more than him. And the interplay between them is, is what the story is about. It, it kind of becomes about her. It, it does become about her. Yeah. I mean, some people have interpreted it as sort of a, a white savior type of complex. Yeah. Um, how can I be the person who holds the flag for this cause? I wasn't expecting the story to be so funny. The, the idea that you could write this story about this sort of dynamic between a, a Palestinian man and a, and a woman who seems hell-bent and obsessed about, you know, as you, as you point out, the cause. And can, you, can you talk about that at all? Sure. And I appreciate you saying that. Um, to me, when I write stories, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to just educate. I mean, education is actually a very tertiary role in, for, for my writing. There's much better ways to get an education. There's much better ways to understand things at a deeper uh, level. What I'm trying is essentially to, number one, really entertain people. So, um, but in addition to that, within society, there's things that you can't help but try to satirize because they're so innately ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so in my writing, I'm, I'm constantly looking for avenues that I can do that. And in, in that kind of situation, even though it seems quite serious, there are always um, cracks where you're like, I, even as the writer, can't believe what's happening between those two. Well, let, let me ask you this. The, the, I should be clear, it's a short story collection, and in each 
short story, there is a different um, Palestinian character who's who, who's who's come to Canada, and each of these characters are very different. But when you are able to take these short stories and put them into a collection, is there something shared between them all that you notice? Uh, sure, I think you know. Ultimately, I'm 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 writing about a group of people who share a certain background uh, in that they're sort of out of place, as the Palestinian um, writer Edward Said put it, um, and. As a result of that, they they can't help but have certain experiences that they react to in certain ways. Now, obviously, the, the characters are very varied. They're going to have different reactions. They're going to have different responses to these experiences. Um, but I think a lot of the themes of sort of alienation, a lot of the themes of of, of trying to overcome things, are there. Um, and so that's what I think a lot of these stories, looking at them holistically, share. Was, was there anything when you put them all together that surprised you about your collection? Um, it, it surprised me that I was able to finish it. That's, <laughs> that's number one. That's number, I mean, when, you, when you're write, writing such a solitary activity, especially having a full-time job, yeah. um, you're basically plugging away, plugging away. And then eventually when you do have a, um, a collection, it's like, wow, um, that happened. Um, but really, the thing that was most surprising is is how well received it was by people who who have read it, uh, and and that's something that is surprising, but also really, really again validating. Is this motivation to keep writing? For sure, no doubt. Oh, I can't wait to read more. Lovely to meet you. Congratulations! What a debut collection, I must say. Really incredible stuff. Thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate it. Saeed Tibi is the author of the short story collection, Her First Palestinian. It is on the literary fiction shortlist for the Rakuten Kobo Emerging Writer Prize. All right, that is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, uh, Caroline Polachek. Do you know about Caroline Polachek? I had a conversation at a bar on Saturday night, and someone said, who is this Caroline Polachek you had on the show? I hear she's incredible. All the kids are talking about her. And I love whenever... I love whenever that happens because, yeah, Caroline Polachek is incredible. She's been called the most experimental artist in pop music today. She's been called the Kate Bush of her generation. So you're going to hear Caroline talk about her new album, Desire, I Want to Turn Into You, and how taking acid and listening to Celine Dion inspired one of her best songs. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.